You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. I'm Deirdre Boza in for Kelly Evans. Here's what is ahead on The Exchange. Stocks lower again today with all three averages on pace to finish August in the red. But one portfolio manager is heeding Warren Buffett's advice to be greedy when others are fearful. He will tell us where he is seeing those opportunities and violent clashes in Iraq, a potential flood of Iran oil, Germany's rapid nat gas build, strong U.S. data that is all whipsawing the energy complex. We will get the geopolitical implications and what is next for prices. Plus, we hit the three Bs yesterday, so today we will tackle the three Cs. That would be CrowdStrike, Chewy, ChargePoint. Those are all on deck in today's earnings exchange. We begin with today's market action. Dom Chu with the numbers. Hey, Dom. It looked like it was going to be green at one point, right? It did. It It was was green. It was close. And now we're pervasively in the red at one point here. Uh, The Dow Industrial is down nearly 300 points at this stage here. That's roughly 1% off-session lows. The S&P 500 now below the 4,000 mark, 39.83 the last trade there. We're down 46 points, roughly one and a quarter percent declines right now. To give you an idea of the context and trading range, at the highs of the session, we were actually up 14 points. At the lows of the session, down roughly 62. So again, tilting towards the bottom end of that trading range so far. The composite index for the NASDAQ, 11,844, 173 points, down one and a half percent. The real big decliner there, as has been the case with that downside volatility that we've seen since last Friday in Jackson Hole and the Fed Symposium. If you look at the interest rate picture, it's driving a lot of the action. Better than expected economic data on the jobs front and, of course, on the consumer sentiment front, is helping to push interest rates higher. Now, we have just ticked a slightly lower off those highs of the session still, though, pushing 3.11%. That gradual rise that we've seen in rates over the last couple of weeks here, renewing some concerns about things like valuations, also a possible economic slowdown as a result of those higher rates. That's playing out for sure in two key parts of the market. The first one here is one that we've come to know really well in terms of economic cyclicality. That is oil, commodities overall. WTI crude $91.59 off 5.5%. As a result, names like APA Corp, Halliburton, Chevron, among some of the energy producers and servicers that are down anywhere from 3 to 5%. The energy sector, by the way, down 3.5%. By far the worst performing sector in the S&P 500 today on some of those growth concerns. And then another part of the market that's key, Deirdre, one that you guys talk about quite often during Tech Check, the technology trade overall, specifically semiconductors. Look at NVIDIA, Applied Materials, and Advanced Micro Devices each among the worst performing stocks in the S&P 500 just over the course of the past week. So if you're watching some of those growth concerns, interest rates rising and that sort of thing, these semiconductor stocks are taking Mm -hmm. it on the chin as a result. So Deirdre, watch them. Many traders consider them a leading indicator for the overall tech trade. Yeah, we will indeed. And you know, the NASDAQ uh, quickly giving up some of those gains we've seen this quarter, though it is still uh, the leading index for this quarter so far. Now, the recent downturn may have some investors wondering if now is the time to get out, especially as we head into September, which is historically a bad month for stocks. But our next guest says now is not the time to run. Now is the time to find opportunities. Joining me now is Robert Pavlik, Senior Portfolio Manager at Dakota Wealth Management. We quoted you earlier. You like Buffett's quote, and it's suitable because today is actually his 92nd birthday, Bob. So now is the time to be greedy when others are fearful. 
Yeah, I, I think the market is trying to reposition for what they thought came out of the Jackson Hole speech. But really, if you if you analyze that speech, nothing really new came out of it. I mean, we know that we're in sort of an economic slowdown. We knew that that was going to continue to raise interest rates. But yet a lot of folks were, were looking for a pivot. We never based any of our purchases on a, on a pivot. We've been looking for, you know, further rate cuts, but some of these rate cuts to sort of um, minimize as we go forward and then an eventual pause. Right. So then what were the markets going on? And I know we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks. Markets seem to get ahead of themselves. But at issue there was the Fed's credibility. Right. How's that changed with the latest speech that we heard from Fed Chair Powell? I don't I don't think so. I, I think the, the computers, I mean, we have a very quiet week, very thinly traded. Um, yesterday was like one of the slowest volume trading days of the year. We had only 800 million shares trade last Friday. And, and so you had the, the traders and you had the algos really sort of setting this market off down a thousand points in a single day for what was, again, no new news. The, the Fed is working to slow the economy. And, and that's the right thing to do here because we have a supply demand issue. We don't have enough supply to match up with demand. And, and we have inflation as a result of that. And people are running scared. But, you know, some of these tactics that the Fed has taken have actually helped. I mean, commodity prices are down. Housing is, is slow. Retail sales, especially as it applies to apparel, has slowed. And, and we just need a little help on the, on the jobs front. And I think that's coming, especially with the recent announcements of layoffs. Right. So, Bob, given that backdrop, what are you buying now? Um, you know, we've talked to a number of people who actually like tech at these levels, even though if you think rates are rising, that may not necessarily be a good thing. No, I, I, you know, there's there's opportunities, but you have to be very selective. I'm not saying go out and buy every five letter pink sheet stock out there. But I think if you if you take a look at some of the opportunities that are being presented, you know, a company like AutoZone, it's a DIY company. So it's defensive at a blowout quarter. It dominates their space. Starbucks, which has great management, incredible customer loyalty, strong demand. And then Jack Henry, which never gets mentioned on air. It's under radar tech. It's a necessary product, highly rated by both customers and employees. So three great companies, all looking pretty good, all with at least 18 percent upside. And, Bob, what about with Starbucks? We talk often about the labor issues that the company is fighting. That doesn't scare you off the stock at all? It doesn't um, because it's not across the board. I, I, I can understand. But Starbucks is having trouble attracting employees, but really sort of, you know, who isn't right now? But I think that 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 problem gets resolved as, you know, we get a little bit more further rate hikes and people start looking for jobs and and applying for jobs that they might have been passing up before. Yeah, we're going to talk lots more about that in the show. Uh, thank you very much, Bob. Robert Pavlik with thank Dakota you. Wealth Management. Now, one of the biggest decliners in today's market, we mentioned it, it's energy oil falling 6% on headlines for major producers across the globe. First, political violence last night in Iraq. OPEC's second largest producer supported prices. Then investors turned their focus to Iran, with analysts now predicting the country would return to the global market in a big way if the U.S.-Iran nuclear agreement is reached. And finally, data here in the U.S. this morning supported the continued expectations of aggressive Fed rate hikes. So where do we go from here? To break it all down, let's bring in John Kilda, founding partner of Again Capital and CNBC contributor. John, make sense of all these headlines for us. We didn't even mention it, but there's European invention and their energy crisis as well. Yes, Deirdre, thanks for having me on. There's a lot going on, and uh, yesterday as well, we got a scare thrown into the market uh, with the developments that occurred in Baghdad, and specifically the attack on the green zone, which got quickly resolved. So right now, the mode we're in is consumers are on a winning streak. Uh, they're being, we're, we're very lucky from that perspective. 
uh, because we haven't lost the material amount of Russian supply yet. Uh, China demand has been very weak uh, year on year. Gasoline demand is down about 8%. Uh, and so we're hanging in there. I will highlight, though, that we do remain vulnerable to various headlines, like we saw with yesterday's Iraqi situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but overall, with the economy going into a downturn, engineered by the Fed, uh, the demand picture just is not as robust or troublesome as it was looking uh, just a few months ago when all the concern came into this market and WTI traded up towards $130 a barrel. Right, but John, you mentioned China and its reopening. Does that not offset demand weakness that we could see here in the United States? I I think there's a lack of visibility on how sustainable the openings are. Uh, They continue to avoid uh, a vaccine policy for whatever reason. And so to the extent we keep getting reports and and developments that the downturn there, uh, excuse me, that the lockdowns are going to continue to be rolled out, uh, there's enough of a concern about demand in China uh, to keep a lid uh, on prices and the the worries about demand from them at bay, uh, again, for now. But also, too, the Chinese economy has been in trouble uh, really for a while. Uh, the GDP declining, uh, all, all kinds of other issues, their property market. They had to do a huge uh, intervention in terms of their, their currency and, uh, and lending to support things. So uh, the economic picture there outside of COVID isn't looking bright either. Right. But, John, does that mean you're not buying stimulus efforts either? I mean, Beijing is trying to ramp up activity separate of lockdowns. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical if they can pull it off. I think they're in much deeper trouble uh, than they've been signaling. Uh, and I think the data is bearing that out. So they have a lot of wood to chop in terms of getting mm-hmm. uh, their economy uh, back to a place where it would be a, a meaningful pinch on crude oil demand and energy demand here uh, going forward. I mean, they, they have cut back on their refining operations drastically uh, as a result of fears over internal demand, even though they could be massive sellers in the export market, which they're not taking advantage of for whatever reason, Deirdre. Mm-hmm. But I think internally the worries are real and persistent. Right. And, John, a lot of the headlines we set out at the beginning of this segment over the last 24, 36 hours, these are still short-term moves, volatile moves at these elevated levels. What is your longer-term outlook? I think we head lower here uh, into the fall. Uh, we'll certainly get back into the uh, mid to lower 80s for a time. Uh, the fears are going to emerge again, though, about what the outlook is for the winter. Uh, there is good news for the Europeans. Uh, some of the weather runs we just got on our desks this morning are showing a uh, warmer-than-normal winter potentially for Europe, which would be huge. So we may catch a break. Again, uh, we got to continue on this lucky streak, so I think the pressure remains to the downside what? with occasional bats over 100. But I think over the course of the winter, as soon as we can determine that supplies are, in fact, sufficient, we'll head back down lower again. What about Russia, though, John? What if we see you know, more cuts or a full-scale cut out of the country? That is one of the vulnerabilities. But right now, uh, China and India in particular are more than happy to buy severely discounted uh, Russian barrels. And as a matter of fact, one development that came out of the Iraq situation that I referenced earlier is that the Iraqis are now looking to sell their barrels into Europe because they're getting displaced by these cheap Russian uh, bargain basement crude oil supplies. So it's it's very much a moving chess piece. But yes, part of my downward outlook for prices is that the Russian barrels mostly stay on the market, which we have been able to achieve thus far. John, it's great to get your insights. Thank you. Talk to you again soon. John Kildeff.
Coming up on the show, Meta, Apple, Microsoft, those are just some of the names in big tech that people are betting on on the metaverse. But how long will it take to pay off? And what are the risks if it doesn't? That is up next. Plus, CrowdStrike, ChargePoint, and Chewy, they're set to report after the bell. We'll tell you what to expect from each name, whether they're buy ahead of results. The exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. There is an arms race going on in the metaverse with all the major players battling it out. But will their big bets pay off? Steve Kovac here with me with the risks and the reward. You were recently on the West Coast. I'm glad I could join you here on the East. Yes, this is great. We're finally on set together. So, Deirdre, let me talk about this. This is what I'm calling a year of metaverse hype, and it's now coming for the payoff. Starting this fall, we're going to get the first wave of virtual and augmented reality headsets. Let's start with Meta. Mark Zuckerberg saying Meta's headset, which is codenamed Cambria, is going to launch in October. And early next year, Sony says it's going to have its PlayStation VR 2 headset, which actually needs to plug into a PlayStation 5 to run. Also, early next year, we're expecting that long-rumored Apple headset. Now, lots that are at stake for these companies, but more so with Meta. It's the only company out of all these that are uh, betting big on the metaverse. And if this is a blemish for Meta, if it's a dud and doesn't sell well, it's going to hurt the company a lot more than its rivals. Also, the market here is small for headsets and not expected to grow significantly. Look at this research from IDC predicting only 50 million will be shipped in 2026. And over a third of those will go to the enterprise, not those regular consumers like you and me. So to put that in perspective, 50 million compared that to the more than 200 million smartphones a year that Apple, just Apple, ships every year. This is going to be a niche market for a long time and headsets are not going to replace your phone. Meanwhile, the price is going to be tough to swallow for many early reports saying Meta is going to charge at least a thousand bucks. And we all know Apple charges a premium for everything. So it's not going to be cheap to play around in the metaverse. And even then, no one might be there. So. <laughs> or not many. Not many. That is a yeah. high price point and still yes, very niche. Exactly. Um, we'll stay with us. We're going to bring in someone else for more on big tech's battle over the metaverse hardware and what it means for companies like Sony, Apple, and Meta. Let's bring in Joanna Stern, senior personal technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Joanna, thank you for joining us this time on the exchange. Um, okay, Steve gave us a rundown of all the different headsets. Very expensive, very niche still. I mean, even Sony's, right? You need a place, you need a console. You need a 500 dollar console just to use it. Exactly. So where are we in terms of this big metaverse ambition? Well, I do want to say I will be in the metaverse. So if I'm alone, but I'd I'd like you guys to join me there, I guess I'll be there alone. You already are, Joanna, right? You've even gone to like nightclubs and comedy shows. I mean, I may be an avatar right now. We're, we're not really <laughs> sure. Where does real blur with the fake? We don't, we don't know. Um, but Steve hit on all of the points, right? This is not yet a mainstream market, especially not with what uh, Meta is going to be coming out with in October, which is this Project Cambria headset, which is really aimed at uh, higher-end gamers or those that are looking to develop for the AR and VR platform that Meta wants people to build for this metaverse. The big thing that we need to look at here is how is Meta at making hardware, right? They've had a hit. They've done, maybe hit is a, is a subjective word, with the Oculus Quest or the Quest 2, the Meta Quest 2, whatever they're calling it now. But this is more advanced technology. It needs to blend VR and AR. And as Steve mentioned, this is a big step into the AR realm that's expected to have what they're calling color pass-through. So you can actually 
see color uh, in the real world around you, but that that overlays some virtual objects. And so the jury's really still out is how can Meta deliver on this hardware platform? And they need to control that hardware and software platform as they go into the future. What we're talking about, guys, though, is the sort of further off vision of the metaverse. There are instances where you can see it sort of in maybe better effect at the moment with games like Roblox and Minecraft, um, which aren't really looking into headsets at the moment. No. They'll um, be on the headsets. They just don't want to make them. Eventually, yes. right? Um, and I guess that brings up the question. We talked about this earlier on Tech Check. Is there going to be interoperability? <laughs> Everything you just ran through, Steve, and you as well, Joanna, doesn't say anything about that, doesn't tell us we're heading towards that at all. No, and that's exactly it. So in the purest definition of the metaverse, it's more like the open web, right? Meaning you can go to any site on any device. The, the purists of the metaverse believe it should be like that. But that's not what big tech is building. That's not what Apple's building. That's not what Facebook is building. Mark Zuckerberg saw years ago, Apple and Google were able to build their own walled gardens, icing him out. And he doesn't want that to happen again. So he's building his own walled garden. Forget about all the messaging about making it cheap and accessible. That's not what they're doing. They're making it expensive and inaccessible. <laughs> so all of these tech giants, Joanna, they have seen what, how valuable an operating system is. They want to create one for the metaverse. So we always talk about the big tech players. Who's going to lead the path? But it's possible, isn't it, that someone's building the biggest metaverse company in their basement right now. It may not be any of them. It's possible. I, I mean, <laughs> yes, we, we saw that similarly with sort of the PC race. But when you look at what happened with smartphones, it was two giants that dominated, right? And in most cases, at least with Apple, they controlled the hardware and that software platform. Google, less, lesser to a degree, right? Microsoft completely failed. But this is what we have again happening, right? That race, you're going to have Google, you're going to have Microsoft, you're going to have Meta, you're going to have Apple. So it's a four-way race there. You're going to also try to have Amazon in there. Amazon not wanting to sort of leave out the Alexa platform and what they've built with their shopping platform as well in AR. And sure, yeah, there's a chance that someone in their basement right now is making a really sleek, <laughs> cool headset and all the software to go with it. Uh, but how does that not cost uh, more than $1,000? You seem right? really big... skeptical. Yeah, and, and I get it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say uh, no. What do you think? See, I mean, Oculus was an acquisition. It, it was made in a basement, Oculus. It was. Yeah. I, know, I know it's harder, and this is requiring billions of dollars in Meta's case, $10 billion a year. Um, but not necessarily the hardware, but maybe when you talked about these systems, like it being the open web, maybe someone's creating the technology for the interoperability. Yeah, Microsoft talks a little bit about that. They do believe there should be some interoperability, but you also got to keep in mind, Microsoft, go figure, focus on the enterprise. And so that figure I put up from IDC showing the enterprise customers for this, that's where Microsoft's playing right now. They don't necessarily want or need people like you and me playing mm -hmm. around with these devices. So that's what they're focused on. There's a huge opportunity there. Even Google Glass, RIP, remember that one? That's being used in the enterprise too. So there's there's this idea, this kind of bifurcation of it. But uh, of all these companies, Microsoft's the only one talking about interoperability in a serious way. Well, okay, Joanna, and let and me I'll, take a I'll step. throw in Magic Leap, because Magic Leap was the sort of the big unicorn, the white whale that was supposed to do this. They were supposed to do this five, six years ago, if you remember the funding that they, that company got. And we, they have a headset out. They had partnerships with AT&T, but still no big sales of, of Magic Leap right. 1 or 2. Right. 2 is coming out. And maybe they get acquired. Now, the only company really talking about the metaverse in a huge way is Meta. The other tech companies are talking about it in maybe more subtle ways. Um, and a lot of them are focused on gaming right now. And there is this connection, Joanna, between the metaverse and gaming, even when we talked about EA um, being in play as an acquisition target. Do you think that that 
plays a part in that consolidation we're seeing right now to grab the titles, to get ready for a next phase of gaming or internet or metaverse? I think if you look back at the history of some computing platforms, gaming has fueled that first step, has pushed the early adopters, right? We saw that with PCs, PC gaming. We've seen that a little bit with phones as well, right? People buying those, buying them for the games, being a huge market on phones. So I think that is going to be the inroad to VR or AR. Mm -hmm. But again, as we kicked off this segment, how does it go mainstream, right? How does everyone like you, me, and Steve want to put this on during the day? Because- We've got jobs, and we can't play Roblox <laughs> during the middle of the day. No, not I yet. I might be least. playing right now. These could be. Those could be smart yeah. glasses. Um, I mean, my avatar showed up for this, so I, I have no idea what real is <laughs> You're actually just doing. an avatar, exactly. Uh, thank I, you both. Joanna no Stern really of the Wall Street Journal and our Steve Kovac. Still ahead, Elon Musk making another attempt to scrap his deal to buy Twitter. What is different this time around? Those details are ahead. And as we had to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Every, almost every name is in the red. Every name, in fact. Let's see it zoom out. Chevron, Caterpillar, Dow Inc. are the worst performers. The exchange is back right after this. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are well off the lows right now. The Dow had fallen 410 points, down about 390 at the moment. Chinese tech stocks, take a look. They are falling with the market today. They're the underperformers. Baidu posting a year-over-year drop in revenue for the first time since 2020. Reuters reporting that Alibaba will be the first in a batch of U.S.-listed companies to be audited by U.S. regulators next month. Big lots, though. It was, let's see, it is still surging uh, after posting better-than-expected results. Look at that up, more than 7%. The retailer says it brought down inventories materially and is on track to right-size its position by the fourth quarter. Best Buy also moving higher after beating estimates and reaffirming its full-year guidance. Remember that it had warned it had cut its forecast in July on expectations of weaker demand. Shares are on pace, though, for their worst in a decade. Let's get over to Tyler Matheson now for a news update. Tyler. Theodore, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Within the last hour, Mississippi's governor has declared a state of emergency and activated the National Guard to help distribute bottled water. That's in response to the failure of a water treatment plant that has left about 150,000 residents of the city of Jackson, state capital, without safe drinking water. And many have no water pressure at all in their homes. Today, the White House says President Biden was briefed on the flooding that caused the problems at that Mississippi water plant. Federal agencies are prepared to provide access to state and local uh, officials as well. And the Secretary General of the United Nations excuse me, is going to Pakistan next week to see what a spokesperson calls an unprecedented climate catastrophe. At least a thousand people have been killed by flash flooding after record-setting monsoon rainfalls all summer long. Tonight on the news, one year after the fall of Kabul, we will take you to a community of Afghan refugees in Central California. That's at 7 o'clock Eastern time with Shep Smith here on CNBC. Deidre, back to you. Looking forward to that. Thank you, Tyler. Up next on The Exchange, a three-seeds edition of Earnings Exchange, we've got CrowdStrike, ChargePoint, Chewy. They're all down more than 30% from their recent highs, but should you be snapping up shares ahead of their results? That's up next.
Welcome back, everyone. It is time for Earnings Exchange. We gave you the action, the story, and the trade on the three Bs yesterday. Today, we are hitting the three Cs. We're going down the alphabet. We've got CrowdStrike, ChargePoint, and Chewy. First up, CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity firm, nearly flat ahead of earnings, down 6% in 2022. Cybersecurity has been front and center between the ongoing Ukraine war and heightened tensions with China. But stocks have been struggling this year. Our own Dom Chu has a story on CrowdStrike. And we've also got Quint Tatro, Jewel Financial founder and president, joins us with the trade. Dom, laid out for us. So, Deirdre, here's a stock, as you can see in the chart, that's actually been trending higher, at least medium term, and it hasn't had nearly the kind of bigger pullback that some other tech stocks have had. And cybersecurity, like you point out, still very much an in-demand business, given all the cyber threats from around the world and our increasing reliance, frankly, on all things digital as a human species. Now, on that front, analyst consensus estimates call for 22 cents of earnings per share, Roughly 515, $515 million worth of revenues. So what could be a bigger driver of the shares post-report is the status of their new and recurring business. Now, it's a subscription-based company, meaning clients pay a regular fee for that cyber protection. To that end, you want to keep an eye on metrics like their annual recurring revenue, or ARR. Also, how many net new subscribers the company is inked to deals. And then CrowdStrike has been showing some better cash flow trends on their operating side and for free cash flow overall. So are those positive trends still there for cash flow? Now, as for the stock, Deirdre, the options market is already expecting what could be a move of 8.5% up or down in the shares after the report. And that's a little bit more volatile than it's been over the last four quarters, D. Yeah, as you mentioned, Dom, it has held up relatively better. And Quint, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say this is expensive. Yes, I understand that. However, you know, we talked to a lot of folks in enterprise spend, and they say that cybersecurity is just one spot that CEOs, CTOs are not going to scale back on. So why can't you get behind this one? Well, Deirdre, I can't get behind it just because you said the fundamentals just aren't there for us. And especially in this environment, we have to stay true to the fundamentals and try to you know, not chase growth. And this is truly a growth company. Yes, it's 35% off highs, but it's still trading 100 times forward earnings. And basically those earnings, if they hit that number, which Dom said, and the whisper, by the way, is 31 cents. If they hit that number, it's a 50% growth. So it's already factoring in on a multiple basis, a huge growth driver, 28 times sales. Uh, yes, the, the, the news might be great. Obviously, there's a lot of headlines there that may goose this stock you know, on the initial uh, release. But fundamentally, it's just not one I can get behind here. So is it cybersecurity that you think has run too far or is it CrowdStrike in particular? Is there another stock in the space that you like or is it a, as a sector as a whole you think it's run up too far? Yeah, unfortunately, there's just sectors and stocks that we're going to miss staying you know, conservative often and boring, even though the next stock we're going to talk about is kind of my speculative long, but <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, but the reality is, is these are the kind of stocks that let's say we continue to trend lower and the market you know, just gets hit. And these are the stocks that ultimately become cheap at some point. Then I would absolutely venture in. We've traded these names before when they had reasonable valuations and nobody thought that they could continue to grow. But 28 times sales in this environment, it's dangerous. Might go up on the earnings uh, play, but it's it just not for us. Well, Quint, you teased our next stock. Um, so nice job there. That would be ChargePoint. Shares are down just over 2% today. They're off nearly 23% this year. As EV demand surges, there's no doubt the U.S. will need more charging stations. President Biden's infrastructure bill laid out a plan to spend $5 billion on charging stations over the next five years. CNBC's Phil LeBeau is here with that story. Phil? 
You know, Deirdre, the thing to focus on with ChargePoint, it's not necessarily the top and the bottom line. Obviously, people will be watching some of that, but it's the numbers within the numbers. And within those numbers, margin pressure will get a lot of attention. Their margins were higher uh, in the fourth quarter than moving into the first quarter. What do we see as we've seen higher costs for everything from uh, the supply chain for putting these stations together to the actual cost of putting them in? It's, it's an expensive endeavor as they put these charging stations in around the country. And then there's the revenue. Revenue outlook. Revenue continues to grow at a very fast clip. What are they expecting as we move into 2023? And finally, one area that is often overlooked when it comes to the charging stocks, the commercial opportunity, the commercial growth. Yes, we like to focus on the charging stations that you and I might use if we're out there and we need to charge up our electric vehicle. But the charging possibilities when it comes to commercial fleets, Mm -hmm. I think that's one of those stories that probably doesn't get as much attention as it should. (laughs) Well, I can see Quint nodding along with that. Um, It's interesting. You called crowd strike. You want to be conservative. You're calling ChargePoint a lotto ticket bet on EV. Yeah, Phil took all my points, so I I have very little to add from a fundamental perspective because he's right. It's not about the top and the bottom. I mean, this just makes sense. And I think for a piece of the portfolio, if you're out there and you're looking, you know, to speculate, as as Kramer would say, right, you've got a portion of your portfolio for speculative investments for long term that might or may not pay off. We really like ChargePoint here. It just makes sense to us that ultimately these are going to be everywhere. If anybody wants to drive a, you know, a plug-in hybrid or a, a plug-in complete, uh, they're going to need to charge. So whether it's businesses or hotels or restaurants or commercial fleets, I think these things are going to be all over the place. Obviously, ChargePoint's not the only game in town, but it is one of the most notable. Now, what are we looking for? As Phil said, we want to see what the company says. They're not profitable. They're going to have a loss. They have decent uh, cash on hand. We want to make sure that, you know, we're not going to see another funding round or more debt added or, you know, hints of a secondary, that kind of thing right now. But ultimately, if this stock were to get hit on these numbers, Hmm. we would be a buyer of more. We are slowly accumulating these shares for the long term. And those shares are some 50 percent off its 52 week high. Uh, Phil, thank you. Quint. Stick around because we want to get to Chewy. Final one, pet supply retailers slightly down ahead of earnings, but up a whopping 39% over the past three months. Names like Chewy and Petco, they soared during the pandemic pet boom, but it seems that business could be hitting a slowdown. CNBC's Courtney Reagan has the story here. Courtney, it is a story that we've heard so many times with these pandemic darlings, and Chewy was certainly one of those darlings. Yeah, absolutely, Deirdre. Of course, everyone seemed to buy pets or add new pets to their family during the pandemic when we were all at home and sort of seeking that coziness. Um, But really, Chewy as a business is sort of one that offers largely commodity products when you're talking about pet food or maybe it's cat litter, things that you want on a renewable, consumable basis. And so what's really key here is customer retention, right? You want to make sure that you're holding on to that customer, give them a reason to keep coming back. The auto ship program is part Part of that, and that's part of sort of what the analysts will focus on when they're looking at consumer retention and churn rates. But those are really, really important metrics here. The stock has outperformed over the last three months. I think it's up something like 37%, but it is well off its 52-week highs. Profitability, of course, remains an issue with a company like this that has to spend an awful lot of money in the operations for shipping all of these heavy items to make it more convenient for the customers. Now, they're going to be adding more, and they are already adding more services like vet care, like pharmacy, like pet insurance. Mm. And so I think those potentially could be future growth drivers. 
But we'll have to see a little bit more about a lot of that still yeah. in its infancy. Decent amount of, uh, of short interest here in this stock, although most analysts have this at a buy or hold rating. 24% short interest. And if you're looking for value, Quint, uh, less than two price to sales ratio, this is really at a discount. However, like Courtney said, a lot of its business has been commoditized. Yeah, Deirdre, when I was looking at this, I didn't think I'd like it, right? At first glance, I was like, Ugh, I'm not even gonna like this name. And then I started digging into the fundos and it's fascinating to me. I mean, as you mentioned, less than two times sales, that, that's an attractive valuation here on a, on a stock like this. Now they aren't profitable, but they don't have debt. So it's not, you know, hitting into their balance sheet at, at this at this moment in time. Uh, we're going to look for things that they say about supply chain and inflation. My guess is, is that they are easily able to pass on the inflationary pressures to their customers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we want to see what they say about that. It's not one we own, but it's very fascinating to me. However, with a short interest, as you mentioned, at 24%, any hint of good news, we're not going to buy ahead of the announcement, but any hint of good news, yeah. and this thing's going to take off like a rocket. Could be a meme stock with that amount of short interest. Uh, Courtney Reagan and Quint Tatro, thank you both very much. Coming up with the NASDAQ underperforming once again today, we will get a gut check on two tech names that have seen monster gains this month. Is there more room to run or will their competitors close in? And Twitter shares they are lower as Elon Musk tries once more to terminate his Twitter buyout. Will this ever be the one that ends the deal? That is next. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are taking a look at some big movers in the tech trade today from social media to ride sharing to the cloud as the Nasdaq underperforms once again down nearly 2%. Let's start with social. Elon Musk is asking yet again for a delay in the Twitter trial after filing another termination notice to try to get out of his $44 billion buyout. Twitter responded at the top of the hour saying it remains, quote, committed to closing the transaction on the price and terms agreed upon with Mr. Musk. Shares are down about 14% since Musk's buyout offer. So will this be the final straw? Let's bring in Brett, Brent Thill, Senior Technology Analyst at Jefferies. Um, will this be the final straw or is he grasping at straws here? What's your verdict? Is this argument better than the last one that's centered around bots and MDAUs? He clearly has buyer's remorse. He doesn't want this right now. He, he, and ultimately, what's wild about the whole situation is he said in that TED talk it wasn't financially motivated that why he wanted this. So I, I think everyone's scratching their heads. Ultimately, I think hopefully he gets it done at a lower price uh, and we can move forward because the longer he drags this out, it's the more damaging it is for mm -hmm. the Twitter installed base and advertisers and everyone in the in that whole chain it's uh it, it's it's not good for anyone so hopefully this can get settled but clearly it sounds like he, he's having remorse and wants to wants to pull back we think for a lower price we still think he wants to get it done ultimately given his his intentions uh but but again the market from where he launched to now has obviously had a dramatic reversal and so i i think this is still an asset he wants just at a lower price yeah, it feels like every day there's new, new information, new moves. Um, but Brent, next, I want to talk about Uber. It's on pace for its best month since November of 2020. It's up some 20 percent. Then Rival, Lyft, on the other hand, it's up just 6 percent in August. Uh, if you look at the returns over the past year, Lyft is down 70 percent compared to Uber's 28 percent. Um, Brett, I would maybe argue, though, that Uber, of course, it's been on this sort of path to positive free cash flow. Um, it's been in delivery. Lyft is seen as the one-trick pony, but 
for a while that was seen as investors as maybe a better thing because it was more focused. Yeah, I think look, platforms win in tech and Uber is a platform for multiple angles of transportation, whether it's for your food, yourself, your, you know, your freight. And we think ultimately, you know, platforms win. And I think Lyft is more of a point solution. It's U.S. only. It's really one product. So we prefer Uber over Lyft. We don't dislike Lyft, but we think Uber wins. We think ultimately the platform play wins. And I think many CEOs have been talking about this, and I think we see this in our daily life. We're moving from an economy of goods consumption, buying the hooded sweatshirts and in, in trinkets for your home to now we're venturing back into the world. We're going back to work. We're going back on vacations. We're doing things. And, and that helps Uber's business. And we're, we're big believers. The stock is undervalued under two times forward sales, mm-hmm. uh, CEOs buying stock. You're seeing kind of everything you'd want to see for a good setup. Uh, and right now, I think, again, the sentiment still very poor on the stock. So uh, there's there's better, better okay. intention. To own other names, but we, we like it here. It has, been, has been moving up, though. We should note still well below that IPO price. Um, I want to move to another outperformer this month, and that would be Snowflake. Shares are on pace for their second best month ever. They are handily outperforming competitors like Oracle, Microsoft, and Google. Um, Brent, what do you make of this? It was so interesting because earlier this year, when we were getting ready for this economic slowdown and questions about enterprise spend, it felt like their consumption-based model might be at risk. That hasn't turned out to be the case. It's actually been a benefit in an economy where companies are looking to rein in costs. Yeah, they, they had a little scare in the first quarter. I think they got people spooked. That was going to be way worse. Everyone got negative, you know, and I think they had a phenomenal quarter. They didn't see any weakness and they didn't see what they saw in Q1 in the last quarter. This is the most trusted management team. Remember, this is the team that set up ServiceNow to be $100 billion market cap. And we think they're going to do the same thing at Snow. These are the best yeah. co-pilots in software. It's one of the most dynamic stories, 50 plus percent growth, and you have improving profitability and they dominate their category. So yeah. the biggest pushback is just multiple. Yep. Uh, certainly the street loves Frank Slootman. Brent Thill, thank you so much for being with us. Talk to you again soon. And still ahead, it is the second installment of our State of Jobs series. With Tech in Focus today, we'll get the challenges facing the industry and how one company has managed to keep turnover to a minimum. That's next. As we had to break, take a look at the Dow. It is now near session lows, up by more than 400 points. Bounced a little bit. It was down as much as about 450 almost. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. All this week, we are taking a look at the employment picture in different areas of the economy ahead of Friday's jobs report, which is crucial, of course, ahead of next month's Fed meeting. Today, we are focusing on tech. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are currently more than 2 million available jobs in the industry. Joining me now is Lynn Moore, Jr., CEO of Tyler Technologies. Uh, Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it, as we've talked about a lot here, it has been a job seekers market post-pandemic. Um, are you seeing any indication that perhaps that is turning or will turn? I was reading that you're seeing workers who left actually return back to the company. Yeah, you're right, Deirdre, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, it is, it's, it's a tough market. It's always been a tough market in tech, uh, particularly so coming out of, the, out of the Great Recession, I mean, excuse me, out of COVID. Um, we are starting to see a number of people who have left and coming back. We call them boomerangs. Um, and what, they're, what we're seeing is they've, they've learned that uh, the grass is not always greener on the other side. Um, and that, that Tyler's a pretty good place for our employees. So what are you doing in this moment that are you still in hiring mode? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, we've we've been growing pretty steadily over the last 24 years, and I think that's one of the stories that resonates both with our current employees as well as our future employees, our growth. And growth leads to opportunities. Um, we're a very stable employer. Um, you know, during the Great Recession, we didn't lay anybody off. During COVID, we didn't lay anybody off. Uh, something we're very proud of and, yeah. and something we talk a lot about with our, with our employees. Now, Lynn, I'm usually based in San Francisco and throughout the pandemic and even afterwards, you heard about a lot of workers wanting to move to places like Texas where you're headquartered. Have you been able to take advantage of those tech workers moving into your state where you're headquartered? You know, what's interesting is while our headquarters are in Texas, we're actually all around the country. Uh, we're pushing close to 7,500 employees. We've got about 80 offices all over the place. Um, I think what's interesting in the tech world and what you're seeing now coming out of COVID is with this whole thing around hybrid work, um, you don't necessarily have to be in the location. And so actually one of the more competitive factors we're having are, are even people from uh, you know, larger cities uh, trying to make moves on people more, you know, mid-sized towns and things like that where we have a lot of our offices. Yeah, even Apple is asking workers to come back three days a week. What is your approach? Are you requiring workers to be in the office? We have what we call, uh, you know, better together with flexibility. Um, it's pretty flexible across all of our different spaces, and it sort of depends on uh, the type of role you're in. Um, we're generally seeing people coming in two, three times a week, maybe three, four times a week. It will vary a little bit. We're trying to do things, intentional things, like having managers have, have more in-person meetings to, to get people around. Because I think one of the things that's a concern as you've had this higher elevated turnover really is is the cultural challenge. Mm -hmm. um, we're kind of, that really you know prides ourselves on culture and mission, and, and that can kind of get lost over time. Absolutely. A lot of companies working through that, especially in the Bay Area. Uh, Tyler, uh, excuse me, Lynn, thank you very much. Lynn Moore, CEO of Tyler Technologies. Coming up, take a look at this mystery chart. Shares hitting a 52-week high, thanks in part to the Inflation Reduction Act, the connection, and if it stays shining, that's up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of First Holer Solar, they hit a 52-week high today, but they have since reversed course, now fractionally lower. The company announced a new U.S. factory on the heels of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Pippa Stevens joins me now with the details. Pippa. That's right, Deirdre. This is a major expansion of First Solar's panel manufacturing, and it all comes down to the climate bill. The company, which is the largest panel maker in the U.S., said it will spend $1 billion on this new facility in the southeast. Now, we don't have the exact location yet, but the company plans to announce it this quarter. The new plant's capacity will be 3.5 gigawatts. First Solar will also spend $185 million to expand its current factories in Ohio. All told, the company's U.S. output will hit 10.5 gigawatts by 2025, and that's enough to power about 1.6 million homes for a year, according to SEIA. Now, CEO Mark Widmore told me the Inflation Reduction Act was the key catalyst that made First Solar decide on another U.S. plan. The company had been looking at other locations, but the IRA's long-term scope and incentives for different steps from the manufacturer to the end customer made the U.S. a, quote, very attractive option. The new facility will also help with surging demand for First Solar's utility-scale panels. During the latest quarter, the company said it's sold out through 2025, Deirdre, with a backlog of 44 gigawatts. Now, Pippa, you know I usually sit on Tech Check, and we talk a lot about the CHIPS Act and semis and how that has changed the balance. China has gotten far ahead and with the CHIPS Act. Intel and others are manufacturing more in the U.S. Um, can we expect to see other companies do 
make similar announcements? And how does that shift that global balance going yeah, to forward? Your, to your point, this is all really about incentivizing domestic manufacturing. And of course, much of that has moved abroad to China specifically. And so the Biden administration has really tried to bring that back to the U.S. And they've tried tariffs in the past. And this is a different approach since this is incentivizing tax incentives, production credits. So that is in an effort to come here. And we're already see it, seeing it starting to work. We had First Solar today, yesterday. Yeah. We had Honda and LG Energy Solutions announce that 4.4 billion battery plant in the U.S. And so there are potentially many more announcements coming. But, you know, these supply chains are complicated yes. and you can't just, you know, immediately and move them there, there could even be a national security element to this as well, right? Securing Absolutely. Energy I mean, security. The entire energy transition depends on a host of raw materials that, you know, we like to call the myths. Yes. The metal is important for future technologies. <laughs> uh, funny acronym there. Um, and so the administration has said we really need to build these out to secure our energy future as we shift to renewables that require many more raw materials than fossil fuels. Well, that was a great uh, rundown. Pip, I'm glad you could join me on set as well while I'm out east. Thank you. <laughs> that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.